Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. OMG, you guys, I'm so excited about this episode. I'm so excited to introduce our guest to you today. This is going to be a good one. And this is actually an angle I've wanted to tackle on this podcast for a while. So I was really grateful when Mark reached out to me and was interested in coming on. I am not going to try to introduce him myself because, you know, I will butcher it. So let me say, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today and coming on the show with me. Why don't you take a minute and let everybody know who you are and a little bit about you? Thank you, Angela. And I appreciate you having me on. Um, my name is Mark Turnipseed, everybody, and I am the recent author of My Suicide Race, Winning Over the Trauma of Addiction, Recovery, and Coming Out. Basically, that book tells my story of recovery and my childhood and also how recovery led me to coming out. I did so through this process of um, going to do a Ironman triathlon. So over the course of three years, I trained for an Ironman triathlon after a series of relapses. And throughout that process, my story got more fruitful and there began to be more things that I could share with other people. So I started blogging about it. And then people were like, you need to turn this into a book. So then I started writing it into a book. Well, all this introspection, all this work, which is, you know, similar, most people do this in recovery alone, but I wasn't, I wasn't like recovery alone didn't actually pull me into it that much. And so actually engaging with an audience in the blog and stuff got me to do a whole bunch of introspection. By the end of me writing the book, I realized that I had to confront my final biggest fear that had been holding me back and causing me to relapse over and over and over again. And that was to finally embrace my sexuality and who I was since I was six years old and who I had been denying that whole, my whole life, basically. So that's a little bit about me. It's such a phenomenal journey, right? Even just to think about and this is where this conversation is so fascinating to me because I feel like there are a lot of parallels, right? In coming out sober, gay, whatever the thing is, right? Like we're all kind of coming out about all kinds yes. of pieces of ourselves, but I've always been curious, like for you, what do you feel like the parallels are now that you've done both recovery coming out, you've done all of it. How do you feel they relate and intertwine? Yeah, well, I think they all have the root of acceptance and radical acceptance, not just a, okay, well, I, I accept that I can't really control that and I'm just going to go about it. You know, it's a radical acceptance, meaning that you have to throw your whole entire life into it. And that's the way we um, had to approach alcoholism you have to absolutely throw your whole entire life into it. It's not like the weather, 
You know, it's not like just accepting the weather, rather alcoholism and various other things that you come out with in recovery, you have to plunge into it. You have to say, I am an alcoholic and I need help. And I, not only that, but I'm willing to do anything it takes because I'm literally drowning right now. And that's the way that I felt after a couple of years of working a hard program in recovery, but still holding back that lie about myself. I realized that I was at this point where I was, it, it felt like between a rock and a hard place, you know, that tipping off point where we're just like, I can't go on another day drinking, I, but I can't not drink. And I just have no idea where to go. That's where I was with my inside gay. I was like, I, I can't go on anymore in my marriage without coming out. And I also can't come out because that would like ruin my marriage. And also that would ruin my relationship with my Southern Baptist family and all of this stuff. I was just like, I have no idea what to do. The only thing left to do is jump at that point, right? That's the only thing that we have. And the parallels are so very, very strong. Um, but I've seen that with other people, with people in their, in their businesses, for instance, you know, they're like, man, I've had, I've built this huge real estate, you know, mega world around me and I'm making millions of dollars and I've got to get out of it. Or I've, you know, stockbrokers who are just like, I've, I've just got to leave. And they, they jump out, they come out and they, and then they start doing what they were meant to do. And that to me is was me embracing my sexuality was also me stepping into the person who I was born to actually be. And that's actually why I called my book, my suicide race, because that race really, um, to me, it portrayed me like kind of killing the person who I had become because of all my lies so that I could live the person that I was born to be. Oh, I love that. That's so good. And interesting too, that you brought up the business parallels, because I would say as an entrepreneur, you know, it, it's really hard when you step into that too, when you really step into, maybe it's a label thing, but I think too, because the term entrepreneur is so overused now too. Like everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody says they're an entrepreneur. I'm not <laughs> sure anybody knows what that means anymore, but it makes it also a little more challenging um, because people don't really know what it means anymore. And you always have doubters, right? Not everybody. When you say you're in business for yourself or you're building something and you see the vision and it's limitless, not a lot of other people see that vision. So yeah. it's hard, even when people want to be supportive, they're still not really very supportive. They're more discouraging. And well, what are you going to do if that doesn't work out? And yeah. it, it's that jumping <laughs> off point, right? At some point you got to jump in full speed ahead, both feet, no BS. I'm not screwing around. I'm, I'm doing it or I'm not, you know? And yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating to me that you brought up that parallel too, because I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, when you step in, yeah, it's weird. Not everybody's going to love the, not everybody's going to love your idea. <laughs> you know, what's another interesting tangent upon which that I've been thinking about is not only, um, not only that aspect, but also that a lot of 
the big business decisions that have been made in the world, right? They're made at exactly the right time. And we go, why, how on earth did Steve Jobs know that right then was the time to launch the iPad the or the whatever came first, the iPod? I forgot what it was, but you know, why did he make it that at that exact time, the iMac? Why did it come out at that exact time? And what I believe is it's the same type, it's, it's, it's basically tapping into an energy. And it's the same type of energy that we tap into when we come out, when we embrace who we are, when we decide to open this business. And that is, I think that that is one of the number one reasons why a business makes or breaks it is because has it really been thought out? Is it really tapping into, you know, it does the culture, is the culture like hungry for it? Do, do we need it right now? You know, and that's the same thing with coming out is does your body actually need this? Does your life actually need this right now? If it doesn't, then you're, you probably need to wait for a mm -hmm. little bit before you hop into that, that skin, right? Mm -hmm. You may be wildly unprepared and, what I've noticed in the gay culture, at least, is when you're wildly unprepared, a lot of times that leads men, especially into a world of sexual promiscuity or high risk sex and um, drug and alcohol use that gives the gay culture kind of a negative um, stigma and connotation to it. So, you know, when I first came out, my parents that was what they were mostly concerned with was, does this mean that your lifestyle is going to change? Does this mean your um, values are going to change? And I said, no, I mean, I may fly a gay flag in my <laughs> living room, but that doesn't mean that um, I'm going to go out and start partying all the time or start using drugs, you know? Right, right. Were you sober before you came out? I was. Oh, and yeah. you were married. So, Did I catch that? I was. <laughs> Tell me <laughs> I had more. I've been married two different times. Right out of college, I was um, I was working in um, psychological research lab, and I was teaching psychology one hundred and one. But I was also just getting into heroin, and so my heroin addiction. And then I met a girl in the psychology one hundred and one class. I ended up, we started using together, we got pregnant, we had a baby, we got married, you know, we did all the things that we were thought we were supposed to do. Well, I wasn't able to kick my heroin habit. So that marriage failed. Mm -hmm. And she moved back home to Wyoming. And I was living up in Whitefish, Montana, just drinking away my sorrows about, whoa, how much have I been a failure? Like I was headed to graduate school. Now I'm on heroin. And then I overdosed one night and I ended up going to rehab. And this was about seven years ago. So this was like when um, recovery started for me. Although it wasn't full sobriety, it was recovery. And I was trying to get recovered, right? Um, so I started recovering from heroin then. And then, you know, shortly after I got out, I was like, well, it's okay to smoke a little bit of weed, maybe drink some. And I was like, yeah, this is fine. Like, it's not a problem. So I did the marijuana maintenance and the bar rehab. And it was just, it was, and then sure enough, I was going back to my, my psychiatrist to get medications for anxiety. And then sure enough, I was eating half my prescription within, you know, two weeks and I was basically back on heroin, I was nodding off 
because I was so high on benzos and, and booze all the time. And then I had a serious concussion while skiing. And um, I decided that afterwards that my doctor told me that if I, if I um, kept on drinking, that I was going to end up in disability. I was going to end up with wet brain. I wasn't going to be able to speak. And I was like, oh my God, that sounds perfect. And so that's what I decided to do. I decided to drink myself to disability. I had been working as a mental health counselor at the time. So I was like, this would be perfect. Now I can have somebody case managing my life, bringing me my medications, bringing me my food, taking me grocery shopping. That's fine. I'll just live that way. And I failed at that. And I ended up in an AA meeting um, one morning. And this was about three years after I had um, come out of uh, the heroin rehab. And I went into that meeting and I went to that meeting every single morning for the next two years. Um, and I started to get kind of sober. And when I did, I started to also get kind of attractive, I guess, to other people. And this woman found me attractive and we started dating and she, um, is just, I consider her my soulmate. Like what she did is come into my life and she shined a bright light on me and said, this is who you are. Like, I believe in you. And I think you're a shining light to this world. And to me, that scared the living bejeejees out of me. <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm like actually worthy of love. And this woman like sees a, like, I'm just coming out of a very, very dark time, right? Like three mm -hmm. years of very, very dark, nasty alcoholism. And she is shining this light on me. Like, this is who you are. And I go, I'm in love with you. Like, let's get married and so we get married and start frolicking around life. And um, I kind of realized there, I was like, I don't really want a romantic partner. I want a friend. I want somebody to go on hiking trips with. Mm -hmm. And she was that person. So that's the way we kind of started dating and seeing each other. And I was very happy with that. But then we got married and started, it, you know, well, the sex and then marriage. And um, I kind of knew at that point, like right before we got married, that at some point, first of all, I knew when I first started getting sober from heroin that at, when I read those steps, I was like, oh my God, at some point I'm going to have to tell everybody that I'm attracted to men and that I'm not really attracted to women that I've been just doing this my whole life to cover up, but I'm not ready to do that yet. You know? And so when I got married to her and I had been working this program of Alcoholics Anonymous for about six months, I was like, man, at some point I'm going to have to tell her that I'm actually attracted to men. And I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And that's why my book is about, it opens up with this book is for all the liars out there. Because one little lie, whether you're in full-blown addiction or in sobriety, can lead to a lifetime of just like misery and hurting other people and struggles. And that's where I found myself um, a couple of years later was because I didn't come out with that lie, I was going to have to face it now two years later in full sobriety and... Um, it was very, very challenging and a very, very difficult process and a very hurtful process 
to both her and myself, you know, um, but there, there was, there was no option. I remember thinking if I did not come out that I was going to go back out and drink. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where it was in my head. I really had not experienced like the desire to go drinking, but I started to feel it again. I started to be like, man, I just, I, I, that's all there is, you know, the only way to get relief. Yeah. So when, like, at what point in your life, because I think you said a few minutes ago, who you knew you were from the time you were six years old. Yes. So what, at what point did you really know for sure that this was in your core who you were? Oh, oh, like about eight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the minute that, um, sexual organs started to work was the minute that I knew. Um, Now, then a peculiar thing happens though in adolescence was that I noticed my effect on girls and their effect and what they could precipitate in my life and, and moderate in that they could help me keep a mask over that. You know, and if I if I always had a girlfriend, then nobody would ever think that I was gay. And so unfortunately, where I was growing up in South Georgia, um, being gay was it was just not even an option. Right. Mm -hmm. We didn't Mm -hmm. if we did know gay people, it was like Elton John and. Mm-hmm. You know, that was about it. And the rest of them had AIDS. So it was in the early 90s. So mm-hmm. it was like a very scary thing. Not only was it a very scary thing medically, but it was a very scary thing religiously in that you're you're basically, if, you, if you're gay, you're going to die and then of AIDS and you're going to go to hell. So good luck, fella. Like, yeah. you know, no pressure there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure there. <laughs> So I knew, but I also like, I found that like the way I could control things in my life, right? There was a lot of things. And as an alcoholic, that's what we do. We control everything. So I was, I ended up with a whole basket case of things that I was controlling, but they all ended up, you know, imploding at some point. The gay I was able to hold on to for quite some time. Um, But, you know, that's, that's kind of where that was, was simply, it was a control factor. And right. that's the way all my relationships and sexuality was. Right. How old were you when you knew you had substance struggles? Like, was that with the heroin? Was that your first experience? Or did you drink problematically when you were younger? And then it went into that? Like, when did you know you had a as I always say, I had a different relationship with alcohol <laughs> than yeah. my friends did, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I had a different relationship before the t- first time that I drank. So um, people always ask me, you know, what substances were you addicted to? And I'm like, that doesn't matter. Before I was even addicted to substances, I was escaping any way that I possibly could from about the age of eight or nine. I mean, first it was like masturbation, you know, that was like my escape. And then I learned how to choke myself and that was my escape. And then I learned about dust off and then I learned about whip whippets. And this Mm -hmm. is all before about 12 years old, you know, and then 
I learned about um, sports and sports were kind of an escape too. And it was kind of like an identity, but it didn't really work too well. And then along came drugs and alcohol right at about 12 years old. And I remember the very first time drinking, it was different from the other people who I was drinking with at that time. You know, for me, it was like an absolute escape and freedom and for them, it was to do something enjoyable and let loose, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was always, always very, very different. And it was always very, very po- problematic because every time that I used, it was for an escape. And mm-hmm. it was to change the way that I was feeling, you know, right. because I just was not okay in my skin. Yeah. I so appreciate that you explained it like that too, because there are things again, same for me long before I ever had a drink, right? Like, um, for me, food for sure. Like I come from a long line of food addicts and (laughs) sugar Uh. addicts. And I don't know, I don't know that I could say I used it to escape necessarily back then. I can definitely see that in my adult life for sure. But (laughs) But definitely the relationship was different, right? Like everything kind of revolved around it. And, you know, food was always so important. And we were always baking. My mom is like the quintessential amazing mom and grandma and like always baking homemade stuff and cakes. And I mean, you name it. And I always loved that stuff. And I was always compulsive with those things. So it makes perfect sense. Now it's like, duh, (laughs) I was always an addict, you know, it just came out in different ways. And I would say too, probably in my twenties, like I can look back now, I started drinking kind of late, um, for an alcoholic, certainly for the level of alcoholic I got to, I never drank in high school or anything like that. I really didn't start drinking until I was about 19 or 20. And I didn't drink really problematic for many years. You know, I was a new drinker. I couldn't drink that much. I didn't have any tolerance. Um, I was only half committed in the beginning. (laughs) I wasn't that committed to it. But I can look back now and see where I was so off with it. Like it was just a little more important to me. And even though I didn't drink a lot in quantity, I drank every day. So I worked in bars. I was a bartender and I worked in oh, bars yeah, yeah. forever. So for me, once that started, everybody I saw drank every day. So that became very normalized for me. And yeah. I look back now and I'm like, there's nothing normal about that. I don't care if you're only having three or four <laughs> drinks a day. It's every day. Like that's not a normal relationship with alcohol, you know? Yeah. Hindsight's yeah, always 2020. <laughs> if it's a poison, it's not a normal thing to poison yourself all the time. You know, it's just, it's just absolutely not. Um, and it's, it's very interesting that our culture kind of thinks so, you know, I mean, I don't know about you, but you watch any of these shows on Netflix that are popular, you binge watch any of them and they are drinking all the time, all the time. They always have a drink in there. And I'm just like, if you drank as much as those people in these shows, you would be absolutely sloshed all day long, which is the way some of us were. But it was like, I wasn't 
I wasn't being able to perform like that when I was drinking all day long over everything and during every conversation. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we are kind of brainwashed to believe that alcohol is just, it's so woven into our culture and everything we do, right? And we're brainwashed that this is how you connect with people. This is how Mm -hmm. you relax. This is how you get rid of anxiety. This is how you celebrate, right? Like everything is just drink, drink, drink. Yeah. Yeah. We often try to say, no, we don't have it bad. It's the Irish, but no, 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 no. We have it very bad because we have an incipient problem with it. (laughs) Yeah. Like they actually embrace it, you know, but us in America think that we just don't have any problem, you know, it's absolutely, you know, and then the ones that do, you kind of shove it under the rug. Now, I really like this current movement that we're headed into this paradigm shift, you might say, of, of health and wellness kind of driving this recovery and that, you know, it's not people, it's everybody who's quitting is not necessarily a problematic drinker. And some of the problematic right. drinkers who have a problem admitting that they're problematic drinkers are now okay with saying, oh, I'll do it for health and wellness reasons. Right, right. And I tell a lot of my clients that I'm like, listen, you don't have to come out and tell everybody, oh, I'm never drinking again. I'm sober the rest of my It doesn't have to be like that. It just say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, trying to watch my way. I'm changing some habits in my life. I'm not drinking right now. It can be that simple, but I love that you said that. I I just said that in a podcast a while back that I love this trend of just being more mindful of who we are and being more in control of our lives. Because I feel like the last couple of decades, for sure, reality, television, all those things, it's like everybody's drunk there's a lot of despicable behavior that I participated in also. And like it was glamorized to be a drunken mess. And now yes. it's this whole shift where it's just really cool to actually be in control of your life and make good decisions. And people are eating better. People are in more control of their finances. People are exercising more. It just yep. is, it's just that health and wellness is really cool right now. And I love that. It's so much more fun than like getting drunk and vomiting on your friends. Yeah. <laughs> I think too, as what, what we'll end up seeing is as we take closer care and be more mindful of ourselves, we'll start to also take that out into the world and we'll be more, we'll end up having more sustainable practices when it comes to our environment and our world that, you know, is actually dying basically of poison, kind of like our bodies were dying of alcoholism and stuff. I do see, I do see it all kind of connecting. Yeah. Yeah. No question. And it's, I think too, it will allow people to be more authentic in who they are because we get so consumed with this. What will other people think of me? What will they say? You know, in entrepreneur world, I heard most people talk about the fear of failure and it's the fear of failure that holds you back from doing things, but it's actually fear of judgment that holds you back. Like everybody is so fearful of what other people will think and what they will say. And there's this level of like 
so many people are just not living authentic to who they are because they're so concerned with creating this socially acceptable picture of who they are. You know, so I love this shift too, because I think people will get the opportunity to just be, just be who you are and embrace who you are and love yourself and, and other people will love you more, honestly. Yeah. That's why I like to go to my gym wearing my little short shorts and my woman's Lululemon top because Lululemon makes much better tops for women than it does for men. <laughs> Do they really? Yes. I love the girls' tops. So they, they always laugh at me when I go in and start trying <laughs> on their stuff. I'm like, <laughs> it's fun. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I think that there's, there's also a paradigm shift in that and that um, we're starting to value, you know, being who you are, expressing, not only being who you are, but expressing who you are. There's just a beauty in it. And, you know, I, it's like, it's like when you go to a, um, when you go down to Miami or when you go down to Louisiana, you know, like Mardi Gras, I don't, maybe not Mardi Gras, but anytime down in Louisiana and you go and you're like, wow, these people are these people. <laughs> like yeah. Cajun, Cajun part, like this is Cajun party and they are proud about it, right? Yeah, there's no shame <laughs> in that game. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's kind of, um, it's kind of nice to see that and just to think about that in other communities and other places that we are. And, but also carrying that where we, wherever we go makes a much more vibrant and fun place to live. Yeah, no doubt. I also really love that you talk about your journey of recovery and that it wasn't necessarily a hundred percent sober from the beginning. Um, I was talking about this a lot. I think I, I did a Facebook live about it because I get asked these questions. Like people think there's a hard and fast rule on how these things work, you know, and it's like, really, you have to figure out where you fit and what your journey is, because just like your addiction isn't necessarily going to look like mine, your recovery isn't going to look like mine either. Now, does that yeah. mean if you're doing marijuana maintenance, does that mean that you deserve to be shamed or you're not really sober or whatever? It's all progress. Yeah. And I had to figure out what was right for me. And so marijuana is the big question I get all the time. Can you smoke pot and still consider yourself sober? Especially now that marijuana is coming legal in so many places. And I'm like, you know, that's just not my decision to make for anybody else. I can only make that decision for myself. I don't want to smoke pot. I like having a clear signal, as I say, keep the signal clear. But yeah, I have, I know I also own men's sober living houses and, and I've worked in addiction for a hundred years. And I've had so many of these conversations with people who were opiate addicts or IV meth users and things like that, who come out of that and have some drinks and they still consider themselves clean. And I'm yeah. like, heck yes. I consider you clean too. Like we're going the right direction. Yeah. I'm always mindful to not trade addictions, right? Like you were talking about, then you were taking Xanax. Like we can easily trade addictions, but I just appreciate that you talked about that in, it's such a personal journey that you have to figure out for yourself and what feels right. And we all get to our different milestones in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I believe that, um, 
that there's the the words all mean something a little bit different, like recovery, sobriety, clean, and none of them mean more than the other one. You know, yes. being in recovery, you could just be in recovery from heroin. That's fine. That's a good place to be. That's where I was, and it was good. It was better. You know, and for some people that may actually be the place that they need to be and they may never need to be sober, you know, Um, for myself, I did need to be sober from absolutely everything, (laughs) nothing mind altering. Not everybody has to be that way, you know, and you can still be in recovery, I believe, you know, and I think, I think the comparison comes to because people predominantly think AA and NA, right? Because those are the biggest, most known programs. And that was the other thing I pointed out in my last conversation. I was like, listen, you're talking about abstinence-based programs. So yes, Yes. if I'm sitting in in AA, yes, I probably, that's my definition of sobriety because that's where I am. You don't have to go there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally. And And those programs, sobriety does mean and recovery does mean, and it won't work if you don't <laughs> right. be completely abstinent. And it never does, right. you know, if you're planning on using those programs, but there's also a ton of other programs that actually do work, you know, for sure. And, you know, some of them involve like ayahuasca and I believe in that stuff for, you know, some people I've got friends who, who have moved to Mexico and are involved in those types of treatment facilities where they invite people in, lead them in ayahuasca ceremonies, and then they come back to America and they, and they go back down every once in a while and do them, you know? And then I've got friends in Colorado doing the, um, doing the magic mushroom microdosing and stuff like that. And they asked me what I think. And I'm like, well, I tried mushroom microdosing and then I ended up eating a quarter of mushrooms about 30 minutes later. And then I ended up in jail. <laughs> right. I'm like, right. that's what Listen, happens to me. <laughs> yes. In entrepreneur world, this whole microdosing thing is so freaking popular right now. And I just <laughs> laugh, right? Because my story would be exactly what you just said. If I tried to microdose, if I do anything, and I like how it makes me feel, I am going to do more of it. <laughs> yeah. Just, Give me my chocolate bar over there. Yes. Right. It's just how I'm wired. <laughs> like I am yeah. compulsive in everything. It's people. It's my poor dog. I mean, we take codependence to a whole new level, you know, but <laughs> if I do something and I like it, I'm going to want to do more of it. So I promise yeah. you microdosing is fantastic in theory, but that will not work in my life. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, what's funny. I, I wrote about this in my, this story in my book too, is that um, I would, the last, the very last thing that I gave up was LSD. I was like, no, I mean, Bill used it in, <laughs> in, in the history of AA. So I guess we we're allowed to use it. And I kept about 500 hits in my safe. And I was like, there's no way I'm getting rid of that. Well, I ended up re- shortly after I got married, I ended up, relapsing. And it was because I tried just a little hit of acid. And then sure enough, that same night I tried, I had shattered a mirror, tried to kill my ex-wife with a, with a shard. She had a video of me like running after her. And then I woke up in jail, like all bloody and torn up and just like, and that's where I realized I was like, Oh crap, (laughs) I'm going to have to do something. And so 
And then, and I actually, I got out the next day and I tried to kill myself with a whole bunch of Xanax and that didn't work. And then I woke up with my stomach pumped. And then that same day that I walked out of the hospital, I tried to jump off a bridge. And so I realized like, okay, I need, I need to do something here. The, and I need something a little bit more than the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It just wasn't, I wasn't making the connections, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I decided to start training for an Ironman. Mm -hmm. And that's when I jumped into a pool and I just, I got out and I was like, man, I have, there's a connection here and I'm going to start, I'm going to start doing this. So I made a commitment. And then after a couple of months of, of training really hard, I was also working a very strong program with a sponsor who is absolutely militaristic and would not let me go in between the lines at all. And that's exactly what I needed. Right. Cause I had, I had done the meditation ones. I had done the ones who were like, okay, let's just breathe through your problems. Yeah. This one was like, write down your problems, admit it, and then go make amends. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> holy crap. Like he was an action based um, sponsor yeah. But I was, I was working this program. I was also training really hard, but training started to become my life and athleticism and working out actually be, I noticed that it becoming an addiction in that it was starting to impede on my relationships. If right. for instance, my wife wanted to go on a walk, but I had a seven mile run, I was getting frustrated and mad at her just like I would have been if she was getting in the way of my alcoholism. Right. And I noticed these problems coming up and I was like, shoot, I've got to do something about this. And so what I decided to do was take the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and apply those principles to my program of fitness. And so what I did, I said, well, in Alcoholics Anonymous, like what our basic thing is to like, eventually start giving back and doing service work and sharing with other people and basically turning our alcoholism into something positive. And I was like, maybe I can do that with this, with, with my triathlon. So that's why I actually started my blog was to write about how an addict is coming out of, you know, relapses and into triathlon just to share with other people and to let them know that like this was going on to kind of give back in a sense, because I had always been a writer. So I had, yeah. you know, I just loved writing. And then as I continued to write, I was like, wait a second, I could do so much more. So I created a little charity where I was raising money for a youth um, program in Northwest Montana. And I was like, I'll, I'll raise $5,000 and I'll do an Ironman. And that was my goal, right? And so I raised a whole bunch of money and then I committed to doing, well, it was the half Ironman. Um, and that is like, to me, that was a, that was a way of, of keeping the working out from becoming an addiction, right? right? And that is something that I try to share with a lot of people who are like, well, didn't you just change like mm -hmm. one addiction for the other? And I go, no, no, I started to, but then I pulled myself out of it. And now what I do when I go running and when I work out, I'm not running from my problems anymore. I'm running with them and mm -hmm. I'm running against them and I'm running with and against my greatest fears so that I can beat them at the finish line. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. And then people are like, oh, wow, that's a great way to actually look at it. And it's not so negative then, you know, thinking of replacing one addiction for the other.
Yeah. Now I, I can still see it becoming that sort of problem. If I, if I don't continue to give back to other people and that's why I have now my personal training certification and health coaching, and I'm starting a little business integrity endurance, which is about, um, helping guide other addicts, other opioid addicts in particular through this process of kind of exchanging, but exchanging in a healthy way so that we continue to give back. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Giving back is so important. I'm obsessed with service work, just being <laughs> service minded. I am. I mean, it's so important. And and it's one of the greatest pieces of healing for me too, you know, to not be just so entirely self-absorbed, but to be service minded and always thinking of other people. I love that. Yes, yes. And that's part of the reason why you probably have this podcast. Yes. And that I'm also, I mean, I'm still compulsive, right? Just like you were talking about it. I can easily trade addictions. Like I have to be mindful of everything, not getting unbalanced. I'm easily a workaholic, but I knew very early on in my first year sober, I knew that I wanted my whole life to revolve around recovery. I was very clear on that. And yeah, probably because I don't function well at a halfway point, you know, I can't do anything a little bit, right? I'm compulsive. So I can't do yeah. anything a little bit. And it is just more comfortable for me for it to be kind of all encompassing. Like that's where I feel safe. I feel my recovery is safe. Like I want to be having these conversations all the time, you know? Yeah. It's all happy. I feel you there. I'm all or nothing as well. <laughs> yes. 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 Okay. Last question. Favorite question. What is your favorite thing about being a sober person? The choice, the power of choice. That is by far my favorite thing in sobriety. Um, before I had absolutely no choice in my day. I would wake up and the minute that I woke up, it was, I had my Xanax sitting right beside on the bedside table, pop my Xanax. I would go to the fridge, have my shower beer, and then I would slowly start getting ready for the day. Right. That's just, that's the way that it was. And the same thing with going to sleep and everything in my day was predicted and designed so that I could be drinking. If I was going to meet a friend for lunch, if they did not serve alcohol, I was not going to that restaurant, right? Everything was centered around it. Um, I, I remember getting, I bought cowboy boots so that I could fit the little bottles of alcohol into my boots so that I wouldn't have to go all the way downstairs or so that I could, if we were on a road trip, I could pack my boots full of them and still be driving and point my wife out the window and drink on the other side and then put it back down. Like everything that I did in my life was because of alcohol. And it was so limited. It was so focused, you know, and it prevented me from a wealth of experiences out there. But now every morning that I have a, that I wake up, the literal world is my oyster. I get to choose, you know, first of all, I get to choose what I get. The first thing I get to choose is whether or not I'm going to drink or not, which used to not be a choice. Mm -hmm. Right. So once I make that first choice, 
of, no, I'm just not going to drink this morning. Then everything else opens up and blossoms up. And I finally get to experience what we talk about that stream of life. How much am I going to pack into the stream of life today? And ultimately, that's what I write in in my book um, to all the people who buy signed copies is um, may you continue to be blessed as you continue tapping in to this wonderful stream that we call life, because that's my greatest joy being sober is just being able to choose to tap in to this wonderful stream. It's amazing as you were describing that and buying the boots and all of those things, like it's amazing how committed we are to our addiction, (laughs) right? Like we have a level of commitment that is unwavering. And the thing that I find amusing is when it comes to getting sober, all of a sudden we want to be lazy. You know, we want to half-ass it. Like, "Ah, I don't feel like going to a meeting today. I'm tired. You know what I mean? It's like, I never would have been like that with drinking. Like nothing would stand in my way of drinking. And that's how I approached my recovery. Nothing was going to stand in my way of my recovery, whether I liked it or not. It doesn't matter how you feel or what you want. There's plenty of days I go to meetings that I don't feel like going to meetings, but I'm still going because it's good for me, you know? That's why I, I like uh, my the way that my sponsor conceptualized that because he conceptualized that type of behavior as y- your addiction, basically trying to get you closer That's back, right. trying mm-hmm. to get you back. You know, that is yep. a cool way to look at it. I believe it really works when you think about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that everything. Like, oh, okay. Everything you do is a step closer to a drink or a step farther away from a drink, period. So I got to think like, who am I spending my time with? What am I doing? What conversations am I having? What actions am I taking in my life? Am I putting myself in dangerous situations or uncomfortable situations? Or yeah, Yeah. everything I do is is a step closer, a step farther away. And I want to go farther away. Mark, thank you so much again for coming on and doing this episode with me. It's such a pleasure to meet you. I hope everybody loves your story. And I think we can do some cool stuff in the future together. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. That was delightful to chat. (laughs) You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.